If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Now we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday morning here at Calvary, and uh, we are currently in a section from chapters 5 through 7 commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, or the sermon that Jesus gave on a mount overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And it's been called the Manifesto of the Kingdom because it lays down for us the principles and the characteristics of those who belong to the kingdom of God. Now, we know the kingdom of God is yet future. We know that Jesus is going to bring it to the earth when he returns. And so, yes, the Sermon on the Mount is for the kingdom when it comes. But the Bible teaches us that when we give our hearts to Christ, he becomes the king of our lives, and we become members of the kingdom right now. And so we begin to manifest then the qualities and the principles in our lives that are laid down in this Christian manifesto. The Sermon on the Mount was really never intended for the multitudes or the masses. It was intended for Jesus' disciples. Verses 1 and 2 make that clear. Jesus had a private briefing with his disciples and laid down the principles of the kingdom. And he started this sermon with the Beatitudes. Nine times the Lord said, Blessed are they who are this, because... This will be the result of the consequences that will come to them. The word blessed is a Greek word that means, oh, how happy. But it's not a happiness that's outward based on outward circumstances. It's a happiness that goes way down into the heart. We would call it joy. There is only joy in the Lord. There is only true joy in Jesus living in our hearts because our circumstances are going to change. Things around us can become very bad. And yet with Jesus in our heart, there is always going to be the joy. There will always be the knowledge that he is on the throne. Someday he's going to come back and fix all of this. And we hope for that day. But right now we are looking at the Beatitudes, which become the introduction to this sermon. And last time we looked at the first two Beatitudes, where Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, or actually, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed or, oh, how happy are those who mourn. Kind of interesting. Happy are the sad. We talked about that last time. Get the CD. They shall be comforted. This morning we want to pick it up in verse 5 where Jesus said, Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Now, once again, we see how radically opposite this teaching is when compared to the overall attitude of the world. The world looks at this and says, oh, how happy are the meek. That's ridiculous. How blessed are the meek? No. Blessed are the strong, the aggressive, the assertive. These are the ones who shall conquer the world. Those that have the strongest army, the mightiest weaponry. These are the ones who will be victorious. I mean, even Jesus' own disciples were looking for a Messiah who was going to be a military leader, a revolutionary who was going to lead them in a revolt against Rome and establish a glorious materialistic and militaristic kingdom on the earth. See, in their mind, that was their idea of happiness and blessedness. And so to hear Jesus say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, well, you can imagine how that must have shocked them. But listen closely to what Jesus is saying here. He isn't talking about conquering the world. He's talking about inheriting the earth. And they are different. We'll talk about that a little later. But when you think of meekness, we tend to think of meekness in terms of weakness and timidity. I mean, when you think of somebody who is meek, okay, right now, imagine somebody who is meek. What comes to your mind? 
probably some guy named Sheldon, you know, Sheldon, 110-pound accountant that wears dark horn-rimmed glasses and carries his pens and a pencil protector in his pocket. And yet Moses was called by God the meekest man on the face of the earth. Moses was no wimp. Jesus Christ was certainly no wimp. He was a man's man. Yet he said of himself, I am meek and lowly in heart. The Greek word for meek is a word that means not weakness, but listen, power under control. It was used of a wild horse that had been broken and now was under the control and authority of another. The person who was meek is a person who was broken of self-will and independence and it was now under the control of God to be used for his purposes. You know, the writer to the, uh, to the Proverbs said in chapter 16, verse 32, he said, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his own spirit, his temper, is stronger than he who takes a city. That's power under control. On the other hand, in Proverbs 25, verse 28, we read, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit or temper is like a city broken down without walls. See, that's power out of control. That's the opposite of meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Once again, it is power under control. The person that controls their own temper, which indicates somebody who doesn't retaliate when they're wrong or hurt, somebody who doesn't strike back, when someone does them wrong, but, but contains their anger and doesn't hurt those who have hurt them, that's a meek person. Author Warren Worsby puts it this way. He said, and I quote, Remember, meekness does not show itself when we are wrong, but when we are right. Meekness is not the shame-faced boy who was caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Meekness is not embarrassment when I am caught for doing something wrong. Meekness is power under control. It reveals itself when I am right and when I have the power to hurt someone who is wrong, end quote. How can we tell if we are meek? Well, are we exercising control over our temper? Are we refusing to retaliate when others do us wrong? Listen to how Paul said we should handle those who do us wrong. He said in Romans 12, verses 19 to 21, he said, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Good words. Easy to read, hard to live. That's where the Spirit comes in. But look, when Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he was actually quoting from Psalm 37. Why don't you turn there? Psalm 37 has become one of my favorite psalms because I find that I get worked up over the very things the psalmist says don't get worked up about. Okay? And a lot of it is when I watch the news. All right? I've tried to cut back on watching some news. But... In Psalm 37, let's just pick it up in verse 1. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses. You can read the whole thing on your own. The psalmist said, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. 
Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Now, of course, the psalmist is talking about the kingdom age, when Jesus returns to the earth to establish his kingdom. And yet we know that's yet future. But again, the qualities of the kingdom, the characteristics of those living in the kingdom when it comes physically and outwardly are in the hearts of those who have accepted Jesus inwardly right now. So we as Christians should be seeing these qualities manifesting themselves in our lives. And if we don't, we need to pray. And we need to draw close to Jesus because as we abide in him, his character, his nature is manifested through us more and more. And we begin to see these things taking shape and coming through our lives. But listen, with regard to these verses in Psalm 37, the normal reaction when people attack us or do us wrong is for us to fret, to get angry, and then to what? Want to get even. We want to retaliate. But that's not what God wants us to do. The person who is meek commits himself and his enemy to God and lets the Lord handle the problem. Notice the character of a person who is really meek. It says he trusts in the Lord and does what? Good, verse 3. He feeds on God's faithfulness or on his promises, verse 3. He delights himself in the Lord, not in retaliation, verse 4 tells us. He commits his way to the Lord, verse 5 says. He rests in the Lord and waits patiently for his will to be done, verse 7. He doesn't worry, he controls his anger and doesn't seek to avenge himself, verse 8. Folks, these are the qualities found in the heart of a child of God who is meek and will someday inherit the earth. Notice I said inherit, not conquer. You inherit something when somebody what? Dies. Jesus died on the cross and in so doing, he took back the world from Satan. Oh, he hasn't taken possession of it yet. He will. But on the cross, Jesus Christ paid for our sins, and he took back what Satan had stolen from the human race. And when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom, well, those who have put their faith and trust in him, those who have the Spirit of God living in their hearts, which is evidenced by the fact that they have these qualities coming forth from their life, not the least of which is meekness, well, those that have given up a self-controlled life to live a spirit-controlled life, they shall inherit the earth. Jesus will take it back. He will conquer it. He will give it to us, and we will reign with him forever. Well, that brings us to the fourth beatitude in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
You know, it's hard for us to really understand hunger and thirst as Americans. In those days, though, in Jesus' day, the average income for a working man was about $40 a month, barely enough to survive, by the way. In fact, the average person only ate meat about once a week, and they constantly lived on the borderline of starvation. So when Jesus talked about hunger, they knew what he was talking about. They knew hunger well. They knew what it was like to be hungry. But I think even more so, they knew what thirst was all about. They were very familiar with the concept of thirst. You see, Israel is a very arid country, which means it gets very little rain every year. And in Jesus' day, people would typically walk, if they were travelers, they would typically walk miles before coming to a well or a stream or a spring where they can get a drink of water. Consequently, they lived with thirst. It was a normal part of their life. But Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for food and water. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The reason I think he put it this way was because righteousness is as essential to our spirit as food and water is to our bodies. I mean, just as you'll never live physically without food and water, so too you'll never live spiritually without righteousness. Unfortunately, we are living in a world where many people are dying physically for lack of food and clean water, and that's a tragedy. But there are many more who are, who are dying spiritually for lack of righteousness, and that's a greater tragedy because physical death only affects this life. Spiritual death affects eternity. And it's not that these folks are totally unaware of what's going on. Because when a person is starving to death, they feel the, the pain, right? Don't they? They feel the pain of an empty stomach. So too, when a person is dying spiritually, they feel the pain of an empty soul. The only difference is the person that is dying for lack of food and water, well, they hunger and thirst, they know what the problem is. They know what they need to get to satisfy that inner craving physically. They need food, they need water. They're constantly on the lookout for those things, right? The problem with people who are hungering and thirsting inwardly in their soul is they don't always know what the problem is or where to go to satisfy that problem. They know there's an emptiness inside. They know they're, they're hungering and thirsting uh, spiritually for something. Yet they're not sure what it is and where to go to find it to get satisfied. And so consequently, the people of this world who are hungering and thirsting for happiness, we'll say, or fulfillment in life, well, because they're ignorant to know how to satisfy these cravings, they will typically try to satisfy spiritual hunger and thirst with physical things, mostly material things, right? I mean, didn't we do that before we got saved, a lot of us? We knew that we were unhappy, unfulfilled. There was something missing in our lives. There was just a restlessness. So what do we do? We tried to stuff that void full of all kinds of material things and physical pleasures and, and, and whatever else it was we stuffed in there, right? Except it never really satisfied. It never really filled us up inside. Because to try to satisfy a spiritual hunger and thirst with material things is impossible. And yet the world feverishly tries to do that very thing constantly, every day. And that's why God said to the people of Israel who are doing this very thing, and it would apply to anybody today. Listen to what God said in Isaiah 55, verses 2 and 3. He said, Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, God is saying, and eat what is good. He's talking spiritually now. And let your soul delight itself in abundance, incline your ear, and come to me. 
See, what God is saying is you're trying to satisfy a spiritual craving with physical things. And, of course, a lot of that revolves around material things, doesn't it? And God is saying, why are you spending money for what's not going to satisfy you? Bread, water, the basics, the necessities, yes, those are necessary for life. But you also have spiritual cravings, a hunger in your heart and soul, you might say, and you're never going to satisfy that with material things. Paul the Apostle said in Romans chapter 1, he said, God has made all of us with a God-shaped void, and the only way to fill that void is not with material things or earthly pleasures. It's with a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship with God. It's a God-shaped void, right? You can't fill a God-shaped void with the things of this world. You need God. The world is trying to satisfy spiritual hunger with material things that cannot satisfy Again, the only thing that will satisfy the emptiness inside is a right relationship with God. Notice I said, see, a right relationship with God is righteousness. When Jesus said, if you, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, what he was literally saying is, if you hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God, you're going to be satisfied. A right, underscore that, a right relationship with God. There are a lot of people today who go to church. They have a relationship with God. It's not a right relationship, though. In other words, it's religion. It's not a relationship. For years, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. And I went through all the ceremonies and all the rituals. I was baptized. I was confirmed. I made my first Holy Communion. I went to Mass. I prayed the Rosary. I did the Stations of the Cross. I observed the Holy Days. It was all religion. It was all outward, external, and it never satisfied the hunger in my soul because only a relationship with God can do that, not religion. Now, I thought at the time I was doing what was right. And I did feel good when I went to church and did those activities because I felt like I had done my duty. That's the problem with religion. You feel like you're doing your duty when you do these things. God doesn't want you to feel like you're obligated to do these things. When you have a right relationship with God, it's a love relationship. And why do we come to church now as Christians? Because it's our duty? No, because we want to come together to be with each other, to sing God's praises, to study His Word, to grow stronger so we can go out and be a witness for Him in this dark world. It's a love relationship. Augustine said, God, thou hast made us for thyself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Let me show you how this principle of thirsting in your soul and trying to satisfy with earthly things played itself out in the life of one particular person. This story in John chapter 4, which you can turn there, is really, in, in essence, the um, illustration of the very principle Jesus is laying down here in the Sermon on the Mount. You all know the story. I'm not going to read the whole passage to you. I'll pull some parts of it out. But it's recorded in John chapter 4 how that Jesus connected with a certain woman of Samaria and what happened in this meeting. We pick it up in verse 1 of John 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, John the Baptist, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. And so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there, 
And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now let me just stop there. Right off the bat, we get an indication something's not quite right with this gal. First of all, it says she came to draw water at the sixth hour. The sixth hour was noon. That was not the normal time that women came to draw water in that culture. They would come in the morning to draw their water because those wells were often deep and you had to, to pull out enough water for your family and your livestock. So it was a lot of work. So you came in the morning when it was coolest and they used the opportunity to socialize. It was kind of like a, a prelude to our water coolers at work, you know, where you come to get a drink and talk a little bit, right? But they would hang out there and they would draw the water and they would socialize. The fact that this woman came at noon at a time when it was the hottest part of the day all by herself indicates that she was a social outcast among her people. They obviously didn't want to have anything to do with her. And you know what? The feeling was mutual. She didn't want anything to do with them. Why? Why was she an outcast? Because she was immoral. As we read later on in the story, we read how that she had been married five times and divorced and now was living with a man she was not married to. She was probably the town flirt, you know, the loose divorcee. She had probably wrecked a few marriages in town, and now the women hated her, no longer trusted her around their husbands, and so they ostracized her. Why was she immoral? Well, I think she was empty. This is the very issue that Jesus is going to be addressing. She was empty inside. I'm not defending the way she was living. It was wrong. I'm just trying to see what was motivating her lifestyle. The story tells us that she was thirsty in her soul. She didn't know it. And sure, her life was wrong, but she made the mistake of thinking, like many women do, that have the same thirst, that that emptiness inside could be filled by a man. And each new relationship brought her new hope that this was going to be Mr. Right, you know, Mr. Wonderful. Finally, this guy's going to satisfy me. Finally, I'm going to get the happiness and fulfillment I'm looking for, only to have that relationship end in divorce, which brought along with it the heartache and the pain and the loneliness that she had experienced over and over. And, of course, that loneliness and heartache stuck around until the next guy came along. And the whole process started all over again. And finally, as she found herself trapped in this roller coaster of emotions, up and down, up and down, she finally gave up on marriage altogether and just moved in with a guy. And that was the condition that Jesus found her in. See, she was looking for love and happiness in the wrong places, in the wrong ways. And so Jesus, in verse, it says in verse 8, after uh, uh, he asked her for a drink of water, it says, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So his disciples were not there at this time. It was only Jesus and this gal. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And that was true. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Why? Well, it goes back to what happened during the time of the Assyrian captivity, back around um, 713 or so B.C., when the Assyrians, the world empire at that time, came down to the northern kingdom of Israel, and they conquered it, and they took most of the Jews back to Assyria and spread them across the empire and took Gentiles from the empire and brought them in, repopulated the area of northern Israel with Gentiles who eventually intermarried with the Jews there and had children who were half Jew and half Gentiles. These people were called the Samaritans, and they were hated by the Jews as being half-breeds. 
Samaria was seen as defiled territory. No self-respecting rabbi would even travel through Samaria. If you had to get to Galilee, which was north, you would typically, if you were in Judea, which is where Jerusalem was, you would go east, cross the, the Jordan River, go up north until you were adjacent to Galilee, cross back over the Jordan, bypassing the area of Samaria altogether. The fact that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have gone that. No, he had to go because before the foundation of the world, God knew that there would be a woman of Samaria, a hated outcast, an outcast among her own outcast people, two strikes against her, who would have gotten to a place in her life where she was so broken and empty and so disillusioned by trying to fill an inward emptiness with physical relationships that she would be ready to receive what she was really looking for, which was living water, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus had to go to Samaria because this this meeting was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Is Jesus Christ breaking social barriers or what here? A rabbi going into Samaria? Wow, number one. Number two, talking to a woman? Double wow. Three, an outcast, immoral woman? Man. Jesus is just breaking all kinds of boundaries here. Because you know what? God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't care how bad your life is. He doesn't care what nationality you are. All he cares about is a heart that is open to receiving the truth. And so she said, I don't understand it. You're a rabbi. What are you talking to me for? You guys hate us. You don't want it having to do with the Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Notice that. Whoever drinks of this water. Now, of course, in this situation, she had come to that well because she was physically thirsty. What she didn't realize was she had a greater thirst that Jesus was about to address. But what got her to that well was her physical thirst. So she was looking for literal water. But Jesus said, if you drink of this water, you will thirst again. Well, that's true, right? But it also applies really to any pursuit in life. You can write that above anything you are pursuing in your life because there are a lot of people who are looking for fulfillment and satisfaction in all the wrong places too. And they're pursuing this, this satisfaction and fulfillment in various ways, as I said, through various goals. Maybe their goal is to be um, head of a corporation or uh, a successful business owner or something else, have a degree in something. Maybe it's to acquire certain possessions because if I get my hands on that thing, whatever it might be, uh, I'm going to be happy and finally satisfied. Or maybe it's a relationship or it's something else. But listen, Jesus is telling us, whoever drinks of this, you fill in the blank. We'll thirst again. We'll thirst again. Because there is nothing in the material, material realm or the worldly realm that it can satisfy the deep hunger in the heart of man other than God himself. No material thing is going to do it. We, we've all experienced this too, haven't we? We've all been there. And we thought, if I can just get my hands on this thing or that thing, 
If I can get a new house, you know, if I get a new spouse, uh, if I can get a new car, if I can get something that I know is going to make me, if I can get my hands on that thing, I'll be satisfied. Man, I won't want anything else ever again. And you get that thing, and after a while, it just doesn't satisfy anymore. You thirst again. It's just inevitable. Jesus is telling us. You cannot satisfy a spiritual thirst or hunger with material things or physical relationships. There's always going to be the when-then person, though. What is that? person who says, when I get that, then I'll be happy, or then I will be satisfied. Jesus is telling us here, this is one of the biggest lies Satan has deceived us into believing. When I get that, then I will be happy or satisfied. But Jesus went on to say in verse 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The spiritual water that Jesus gives truly satisfies. And of course, the context is salvation, right? You don't have to turn there, but write it down, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is a metaphor for salvation. Just as every one of us needs food and water to survive physically, we need a relationship with God to survive spiritually. We need salvation. Well, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. I mean, yes, it's great. That I may not thirst nor come to this stupid well. It's a paraphrase. Come to this stupid well to draw water anymore. You got something to give me? I won't, have to be, I won't ever be thirsty again? I'll, I want it. Bring it on, see? She took the words of Jesus literally, though, when Jesus meant her to understand them spiritually. See, Jesus wanted to satisfy her greatest need, which at that moment was not her physical thirst. It was her inner thirst for God. Jesus wanted to satisfy her greatest need, the thirst in her soul. And as you read the story, I will let you finish reading the story. As Jesus probes her a little bit and begins to bring this thirst out, maybe she didn't even realize it was there, but he begins to bring it out. And after it comes to the surface and she realizes she's not talking to just any guy, this guy is a, at least a prophet. She's going to find out in a moment more than a prophet. But as soon as, as, soon as Jesus probed her to the point where her real need was, it came gushing out. She said, where can I find God? You know, you Jews say Jerusalem. That's the only place to find God. We Samaritans say Mount Gerizim. That's the only place to find God. Both places had temples of worship. Where, where can I go to find God? See, that is the real inner thirst. If you can, by God's grace and the Spirit's power, probe a person to the point where you cut through the layers of materialism and deception and, and all the things that the devil has blinded them with to think that that's where they need to find happiness, if you can probe them a little bit through the Spirit's power and get down to a level where their real thirst comes through, immediately they will ask you, where can I find God? Where can I find God? What church can I go to? Well, you know what? God is not in many churches today. God is always in the pages of Scripture. And if you find a church that is faithful to teaching the Scriptures, He's there. But so many churches don't even do that. She said, where can I find God? Verse 20. And Jesus said, He's talking to you. And He leads her to Him. She gets saved. Verse 28 says something interesting. 
What did she do with her water pot, the thing that she had brought to satisfy her physical thirst? She puts it down and runs into the city to share Jesus with the men of the city. If this gal isn't saved, I don't know who is. Because one of the characteristics of a person who finally realizes they need Jesus and they accept him into their hearts and he comes in and satisfies them, they put down everything else they thought was going to satisfy them physically because they no longer need it. They realize those things weren't going to satisfy. And the first thing you want to do is go tell your friends and your family about Jesus. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus called himself the bread of life in John chapter 6. He called himself living water in John chapter 4. It's really the same idea, though. It's really the same idea. The idea is that just as our body needs certain things to survive, our soul needs certain things to survive. Our soul needs God. Remember what the psalmist said, Psalm 42? As a deer pants after the water brooks, so my soul pants after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And again, and we're just about done. Notice the psalmist said, my soul thirsts for what? For God. He didn't say, my soul thirsts for religion. The kind of righteousness that Jesus satisfies the hungry and thirsty soul with does not come from religion. It comes from a relationship, a relationship with him, where he comes inside. Because only he can satisfy the emptiness inside. He's God who can fill the God-shaped void, and nobody else can do that, and religion can't do it. With all of its rituals and ceremonies and um, good works. I'll give you two scriptures and we'll close. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Paul was once a very religious man. He was a rabbi. He was a Pharisee. He was a very religious man. And after he got saved, he laid all that down, of course. No longer needed because he realized he wasn't going to be righteous. He wasn't going to have righteousness through those religious works. But he had a burden for his Jewish countrymen. And he said in chapter 10, verse 1 of Romans, Brethren, my heart's desire in prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. There's a lot of religious people who have a zeal for God. As a Roman Catholic, I know people that went to Mass every morning. As people of different faiths, uh, they manifest their zeal for their God in various ways. The Jews had a zeal for God. They went through rigorous sacrifices and ceremonies and so on because in their minds those things equaled righteousness. But Paul says even though they have a zeal for God, it's not according to knowledge. They don't really understand what God has said about it. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I wish more people would read what Paul had to say, because Paul at one time, very religious guy, and he is telling the Jews and all religious people, he is saying, look, you can pursue righteousness or a right relationship with God through your religion, but know this, those things in your religion will never bring you to righteousness. You're not understanding what God has said about it. And what you're doing is you're rejecting God's righteousness 
and setting up a standard of your own righteousness. Paul is saying when you reject God's way, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, and you try to find God some other way, you are essentially setting up your own system of righteousness. But it's self-righteousness and will not save you. And it always revolves around works. That's what the Jewish law was all about. But Paul says Jesus is the end of the law, the end of human works for true righteousness to everyone who believes in Christ. Let me just end by saying this. There's a lot of Christians now. And I believe that Jesus had in view here when he talked about, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I believe Jesus did have in mind unbelievers who the Holy Spirit was working on, convicting them, showing them how they needed a relationship with God to satisfy that inner hunger within. But I do believe he did have Christians in view too, his disciples. There are many Christians who have an emptiness inside of them. They have a longing within them. They're, they're craving something. There's a void. And they can't figure out why. I mean, they've received Christ. They'll come to me and say, I don't get it, Pastor. I mean, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I read my Bible. I, I'm involved in ministry. Why am I still so empty inside, so dry? Why do I feel like there's a void still in my life, in my heart? And I will tell them it's because you're doing the very thing that the Jews did back in the old days or religious people do today. You are substituting activities, religious activities, for a relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, you're saved. Don't get me wrong if you're a believer. I am just saying that we think if we're a little dry and we're feeling a little bit disconnected from God, what do we do? We, we just ratchet up the activity level. I'll go to another Bible study. I'll go to another prayer meeting. I'll read my Bible extra. Hey, that's all wonderful. I'm not putting that down. But Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for spiritual activities. They shall be filled. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, true righteousness, which comes through a true relationship. What Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who hunger for a relationship with God, with Jesus. The only way for you to understand and to feel the satisfaction that comes from your heart being filled is you've got to spend time with Jesus. And if going to church means you're here because you love Jesus and want to know him more, that's great. And if when you open your Bible and you read it, it's because you want to know more about Jesus because it's his love letter to you, that's wonderful. Read your Bible. And if you're in ministry because you love Jesus so much, all you want to do is show people how much you love him by serving them. That's wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. But if those things are activities you're looking to to do the very thing only Jesus can do, you are going to be empty and dry and feeling like, what is the point here? I mean... Nothing is satisfying me. And there's a lot of Christians who have actually walked back to the world because their Christianity is not satisfying them anymore. They're like Solomon, who departed from God and went looking for fulfillment in all the wrong places for many years until he finally came back at the end of his life and said, man, I should have just pursued God. So, folks, that's the, th the thing I want you to take with you this morning. If you're a believer, understand this. We're not exempt from emptiness and feelings of, of longing and craving inside. Something is missing. I mean, there's a lot of people who are dry right now, believers and so on, and, and just feeling very disconnected from God. What you need to do is fall in love with Jesus. And every spiritual activity you get involved in, make Jesus the focus. To know him. To show him how much you love him. Just talk with him. When you read your Bible, imagine he's sitting right there next to you. 
And you're talking with him. Lord, this is wonderful. Thank you for this promise. Oh, Lord, this is just what I need to learn to do, to draw closer to you. Will you give me grace to do that? And as you make Jesus the focus, you will find the emptiness begin to be filled up with him. And that's what we need. We don't need activities, folks. We need Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that in you alone there is satisfaction and joy and fulfillment. And, Lord, forgive us for pursuing these things like those in Ephesus that, Lord Jesus, you had to to write a letter to, telling them, look, I, I know that you are serving me. I know that you're working hard for my glory, but you've left your first love. You've forgotten about me. Forgive us, Lord, for substituting activities for a relationship with you. Lord, give us grace to fall in love with you, to spend time at your feet each day. And as we get up from that intimate fellowship, give us a hunger for the word, a burden for souls, a desire to serve you in this lost world. But it has to all come from our love for you. Give us grace, Lord, to hunger and thirst for you. And as we do, we know that you will fill us because you will always give to us those things that are beneficial and will draw us closer to you. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.